Hi, may I speak with Joel? Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Not bad. Excellent. It's a pleasure to meet you. Me too. Um, for those who, who are uh, not up to speed on your resume at the time, in 1968-69, your resume read something like uh, venture capitalist. Uh, you were investing in uh, and had actually in studios. You want to fill in any of the blanks there that I missed? Okay. No, you're, you're right. Uh, we, had, we had had sort of an, an odd beginning to our venture capital uh, career. And I, when I say we, it's John Roberts. Yes. Partner for life, actually, uh, since we, we started out as partners after school, and, and um, we stayed business partners for 37 years until he passed away. So uh, we had just begun our careers, and uh, we got into it sort of, sort of in a peculiar way because we were actually writing a sitcom about young men, uh, two guys who uh, wanted to be venture capitalists but didn't really know how to do it. They just, just had the desire to do it. They had some money, and they... They didn't have a lot of brains or common sense, so uh, they got into these sort of nutty ventures in our sitcom. For t- it was a television show. Yeah. And uh, we we liked the idea, and, and even better, an agent liked the idea, a TV agent. So he asked us uh, to flesh it out for him, uh, what kind of nutty ventures would these guys get into, and we couldn't figure it out. So we took out an ad in the Wall Street Journal in the classified section claiming to be young men with unlimited capital looking for business ventures. <laughs> and, and every uh, con artist in the world wrote in to try and fleece us out of our money. And, and through that device, we got a lot of interesting plot ideas, strange, strange uh, business <laughs> ventures, wild ones, and some serious ones which we would throw away. And, and the... the the unexpected result was that we got kind of familiar with ventures because we read thousands of them. They came in by mail, every day in sacks of mail. And we, we read so many of them that we got kind of used to the field. And about a year and a half later, we found ourselves actually involved in a business venture. We were building a huge recording studio complex in Manhattan. Media Sound. That was called Media Sound. And uh, we started it in the middle of 1968. Uh, it was the to be the biggest uh, place to record on the East Coast, and mm. uh, that was our plan. And, in fact, it worked out that way. It, it, it was a great success, and uh, I, I don't know if, if tastemakers would say it was a great success. Most of the disco music of the 70s was recorded there, <laughs> as well as a lot of other hits, of course. But, <clears throat> but it, was, it was a terrific project from the standpoint of a well-formed business venture, which is probably not the same adjective you would use for... Uh, for Woodstock, <laughs> uh, we we hadn't opened our doors at Media Sound in 1969. Uh, I think about I think we opened the middle of 1969, about two months before Woodstock. Mm-hmm. In fact, we were still building it around the turn of the year in, in January of '69, when the lawyer that uh, one of our partners had in the recording studio called us and said that he had in his office two guys who wanted to build a recording studio in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them was his client, the other was uh, the partner of, of, of his client. And, and he said, you know, uh, you, you guys, uh, I, I remember doing the deal for, and he named the other fellow who was our, our partner in our recording studio. He said, you seem straight ahead. Would you like to talk to these two about their recording studio project in upstate New York? And mm-hmm. said, sure, we'll talk to anybody. So they came in. And uh, that's how we met uh, Kornfeld and Lang. 
What were your first impressions and, and thoughts on uh, these guys? Well, we were prepared because uh, Miles Lurie, the attorney, said, uh, yeah, well, one other thing, he said, don't be put off by their appearance. <laughs> now, in those days, um, it, it wasn't that nobody had, had ever seen a hippie before, Yeah, but it's it wasn't that usual that you would see a hippie making a, pro- a proposal for a, a business venture, especially hmm. one that would require maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, in walked these two, and they did look like long hairs. They, uh, one of them especially, Lang, was, uh, was a very hip dude. Mm-hmm. And the other one, Kornfeld, was certainly um, attempting to be so, although you could sort of tell that that was mostly on weekends. <laughs> and they... Uh, and they were uh, they were full of high fives and hey mans and um, so forth and uh, very hip talking. Uh, Michael said much less than Artie, who was uh, very personable. Yeah. And and they presented us with this uh, proposal. It was they, they actually had written it out, <laughs> which was which was very organized. Have you ever have you ever uh, read or heard uh, Michael's account of meeting you guys? Oh, I've, it, I've read all of them. They, they've changed over the years. Uh, Michael's latest book, Road to Woodstock. Let me quote here just quickly. Oh, sure, yeah. John had me from hello, uh, down to earth, completely without guile. Joel seemed more what I expected from suits. Less accessible, uh, tried very hard to be charming, but had a, a good and open laugh. That put me at ease, quote, unquote. Well, um I think that sounds about right in terms of uh, the culture gap that might have existed between the four of us. I bet. Or between the two groups, I'd say. But uh, as is the case with most superficial culture, gra- culture gaps, <laughs> uh, that disappeared very quickly in the conversation. Because uh, with the possible exception of Lang, uh, the backgrounds of the three of us, Artie, Michael, uh, Artie uh, John, and myself, were very similar. Uh, and Lang had had more of a, um, he had been out in the world a lot more, I think. I, I don't think he went to college, or if he did, I, I, I know he didn't finish. And he, he just kind of, you know, we used to call it a dropout, but uh, these days we, anything, anything works because uh, talent comes out, and smart people like Michael uh, do well sooner or later no matter what. Yeah. And so, so in those, but it, he was far more worldly, I would say, than, <laughs> the other three people in the room. So what did you think of the idea when they presented it to you and uh, you read it and they tried to, I guess, basically, bottom line, convince you to give them money? <laughs> well, sure, they were there for financing. And we were there to, uh, and, and it made sense, you know, if we're building one recording studio, why wouldn't we want to build another? Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, it was a dangerous proposition uh, because a, uh, something, something that you would build in the middle of nowhere and hope that you will attract clients uh it's a it's a stretch yeah you know it's one thing to build it in the middle of manhattan where uh even if you if you got some spare time and, and nobody's booked a couple of hours you can do tape copies for advertising agencies or jingles or score for movies or you know record the philharmonic <laughs> and it's it, you have, your mix of business can be all over the place, and so you haven't put all your eggs in one basket. And Woodstock is it's, farmers and cows and chickens. It's, and, and Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> and so if Bob isn't recording that year or that decade, <laughs> you're, you're kind of twiddling your thumbs. And, and there were other artists up and around, but even if there are, you yeah. know, uh, half the time, I remember this because 
I, I remember a very famous rock and roll star whose name I will not remember, but at, at our studio, I remember, I remember getting called on Thanksgiving evening to come down to the studio. Uh, studio B was our really good rock and roll studio, mm-hmm. and and because the, the setup guy told me that Mr. Well, famous name uh, had just poured a pot of coffee into the recording console. <laughs> And you know where all the sliders and faders, you know all those buttons and everything. Okay. <laughs> and and so I had to go down there and and not only preside over the removal of these modules, each one of which was something like eight thousand oh, dollars. That was in nineteen. That's that's like eighty thousand dollars today. Yeah. And and but I also had to apologize for the coffee <laughs> to this rock and roll star. <laughs> and it's just. It's just really not um, the kind of business that you want to depend on when you're in the middle of nowhere and hoping for, I mean, advertise, obviously advertising agencies were much more uh, sane uh, type of customer to deal with, but, but um, not nearly as, as lucrative a booking, usually. Risky, risky. It, risky. So, <laughs> so it, it, we thought this was too risky a proposition, uh, their recording studio in the woods. You had no idea that they also had this idea of a little festival. They were holding back, weren't they? Or were they? Well, they, that, that's the way it comes across now. Uh, it's, you know, um, Did they tell you about it, though? Or? Has many, no. <laughs> they, that's, uh, you know, it, it's not, that's nonsense. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's convenient now. But, uh, but, um, that, and everybody likes to think that they, I mean, people ask me, when did you know that you had Woodstock on your hands? And I say... We knew it that week when everybody showed up. You don't, you don't know these things. And I know I've, I've heard and seen reports that Michael and Artie were dreaming about this festival since when they were small boys. But, in fact, <laughs> they came to us. They had no thought about, a rec- about anything except a recording studio. I, c- I can vouch for that because when John and I said, you know, you claim you're going to have Bob Dylan uh, as a client. And it, it just seems to us that that... that that's that's great, but why don't it, it, you know if you can get Bob Dylan out of his house? Why would you want to? He was a recluse at the time. Yeah. Why why would you want to do something like a recording studio? Because once Bob Dylan's finished recording, then you're sitting around looking for customers. Why don't we do a concert with Bob Dylan? Because that would be a, a surefire success. And this other thing is so risky. Meanwhile, since they knew nothing about concerts except that they were riskier than recording studios, then they would they came back and said, "We don't want to. We want to do something with bricks and mortar. We want something more dependable. We're tired of flaking around in the music business, and we want to we want something solid." And so, and and in a way that was sensible because, as it turns out, concerts turned out to be very risky. Also, we didn't know that at the time. So. So we went back and forth. They were completely resistant. Now, I shouldn't say completely resistant because we had the financing, so they couldn't be completely resistant. Yeah, of course. Or they would end up with nothing. Uh-huh. But they were very resistant to uh, to doing a concert and were insistent on doing a recording studio. Finally, the only way we, we, we got to move forward was we said, we'll tell you what, we will do your recording studio, but we'll only do it with profits that we make from a festival. So let's do a festival first. And so they agreed to that. Interesting. But these are not guys who walked in with a secret plan for a festival. <laughs> was, I know. I know it sounds like that now, but uh, believe me, there was. Uh, they were. They were kicking and screaming about. Uh, not really. They were. They were just 
Yeah. They just didn't see it. They, they knew that we were making a mistake. Uh, they turned out to have been right in a way, but of course wrong in a, in a big way, uh, but in a way that nobody could have anticipated. Well, you've heard the story that uh, was late one night, they smoked a joint after Bumper Pool and came up with this idea of, let's do a festival, let's do a music concert, man. And... Oh, no, no, no. It was, far, it was way before that when, um, when, when one of them produced the Miami Pop Festival. Yeah, Michael, uh, yeah. But, but not, not the big Miami Pop Festival. Mm-hmm. Something else, <laughs> and then um, and then it was. Um, but maybe it was when they were sitting in a field and they were having those sound outs in Woodstock and thinking, "Gee, wouldn't it be nice to?" Or or I think it was that time when they were at the movies and saw Monterey Pop and said, "You know, we should do one." In fact, what it really was was it just was a, an idea that happened. I can't even claim credit for it. It was my idea to because I knew Dylan was a recluse. Yeah. And and my partner John Roberts didn't, <clears throat> so it was it was my idea to say to John, you know, John, this idea sucks. This recording studio thing. Why don't we, why don't we come back to them with with a concert? Because if we can get Bob Dylan to come uh, play at this concert, that'd be great. And so we went back. At, but I had no idea that it would be anything except Bob Dylan and a little venue up in Woodstock. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think it was going to be half a million people and 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 thirty five bands and and. Uh, and a, a beacon for a generation. That that stuff happens by itself. It doesn't happen by itself. <laughs> that happens in the movies it only. In the movies, and it happens with a, a confluence of so many different currents of civilization and luck and financing and catastrophe followed by miracle. And yeah. it, it, there are so many ingredients in something like that that you can't envision it. <laughs> I mean, please. <laughs> <laughs> 